if you haven't done so already, and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Paul had a young man that he uh, mentored named Timothy. Timothy was a pastor, a young pastor, and uh, a little bit insecure. I like Timothy a lot, you know. So uh, Paul has a lot of encouraging things to say to, to Timothy, young Timothy, as he pastors in the ministry. And so this is one of what we call the pastoral epistles in which a lot of instruction is given uh, to a pastor of a church. And we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last Sunday of January. I told you I would uh, preach the entire month on giving. And it's been my hope and my prayer that all of us would take this personally and really seek the Lord's face regarding our giving uh, and, and the things that, that we have seen in Scripture. I hope that in meditating on these things, you've been challenged to give intentionally, purposefully, as the Bible teaches us, sacrificially, and even you've made some decisions yourself in the area of your personal giving before the Lord. I'd encourage you to just take and put your faith in action. Uh, Challenge the promises of God. Take them to the bank, if you will. See what he does if you take him at his word. Two men found themselves marooned on a desert island. One man, in just discouragement and despair, paced back and forth, just assuming that this was his last day of life, while the other man just totally relaxed, totally unconcerned, not a care in the world. And the first man said to the second man, Aren't you afraid? We're going to die out here. And the second man said, No, I made a $100,000 commitment to our church building fund. My pastor will find me. Uh, Unlike that man, I have no idea. I have no idea what decisions you might have made this month, but I would encourage you to make some decisions before the Lord in your heart. But if you do make a $100,000 commitment, we will find you. (laughs) All joking aside, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the subject is about wealth. As a matter of fact, it directly addresses the wealthy in the church. And before you check out and think, well, that's not me. I am not rich. Can I just share some statistics with you? About 9% of the world, or 690 million people, live in extreme poverty. What does that mean? It means they live on less than $2 a day. Three, or 690 million people, about 9% of the world's population, live in extreme poverty on less than $2 a day. In the United States, 10.5% of the population, roughly 34 million people, live in poverty as of 2019. But for an individual in the U.S., the poverty line is about $12,800 a year or $35 a day. Which means that those of our population that we consider in deep poverty are still 18 times wealthier than 9% 
of the world. You and I would not probably consider ourselves rich, especially when we look at the standard that is set in the United States. But the fact of the matter is, if Paul and Pastor Timothy walked through the doors of this church or walked through the doors of your home, their jaws would hit the floor at the wealth that we enjoy and that we consider necessities. They would be utterly just aghast at what we have. And the world around us is is clamoring for more and more. They are drunk with materialism. But the Bible gives us an entirely different way for us to perceive money and to perceive ourselves in particular in light of the things that we have to enjoy. And so look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want us to really consider these verses with ourselves in mind. It says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto that are also called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in times he shall show is who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The message this morning is entitled, Rich in Good Works. And we're going to break this passage that we just read down into four truths and and use those truths to evaluate us from within according to God's Word. And the question that we should all consider as we go through this passage together is this. Do you pursue riches and hoard them and trust in them like the world does? Or are you generous particularly in giving of your wealth and endeavoring to be rich in good works. Notice, first of all, this morning, the reality of wealth. The reality of wealth in verses 6 through 9, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. 
But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. There are two pursuits described for us here. There are two pursuits described for us. The first is the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness. God's kingdom and his righteousness should be your primary pursuit as a born-again Christian. That should be your primary pursuit. That should be your end game. That should be your goal in life. And when God's kingdom and his righteousness is your primary pursuit, he promises to take care of the rest. He will bring the gain when you seek godliness and contentment. Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, clothing and raiment and food, will be added unto you. We are to be pursuing God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he brings the gain if we'll seek out godliness and contentment. And notice that there are riches of contentment. The riches of contentment in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The Bible describes that contentment paired with godliness is gain. When we think of gains and losses, we think of material wealth. We think of our investments and our accounts and things like that. Yet the Bible says there is gain in godly contentment. Not only gain, but great gain. You know what would make you filthy rich and wealthy beyond your wildest dreams? Godly contentment would. Godly contentment. Proverbs 10, verse 22 says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about money. If you can find true contentment, if you can be truly satisfied in what you have and where God has placed you, then you have attained a wealth beyond the richest people on this planet. They have it all, but they don't have satisfaction. And if you have satisfaction in your Lord Jesus Christ and what he has given you, you truly have everything. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says, Let your conversation or your behavior, your conduct, be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The argument of the author of Hebrews is, God is with you. What more do you need? A devout Quaker was watching his new neighbor move in next door. And after all kinds of modern appliances and electronic gadgets and plush furniture and costly wall decorations had been carried in, the Quaker called out, If you find you're lacking anything, neighbor, let me know and I'll teach you how to live without it. If we can find our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has blessed us with, we are rich beyond our wildest dreams. What more can we possibly need? than what we have in Christ. The riches of contentment. Notice verse 7, the reality of contentment. He says, we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. He echoes the sentiments of Job in Job 1, verse 22, where he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The reality of contentment 
is grasped more fully when you understand that everything that you have in this world will stay here in this world. I've been in ministry over 10 years, and during that time, I've done my fair share of funerals. The pastor I took over from at my last church labored there for 14 years, and he did over 100 funerals in that time. I've heard him say this, and he should know, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you, and you won't take it with you. True contentment comes when you have the proper perspective on your possessions. There are things that you value, but they will have very little value once you are gone. There are things that I find great joy in and that I treasure that I know nobody's going to treasure when I'm gone. The Egyptians filled tombs with treasure to assist the dead and their twisted version of the afterlife. And what happened when those tombs were open? It was all still there. It was all still there. It didn't do them one bit of good in eternity. Everything material that you place value here on here is temporary. It's not going with you. It's not going to last. And if you don't lose it while you're alive, you'll for sure lose it when you're dead. And your children just might fight over it and feud over who gets to have it. You will leave this world the same way you came in. Broke. Completely broke. Because everything that you have is a momentary blessing from the Lord. It's a momentary blessing from the Lord. That's the reality of contentment. Everything I have is temporary. And then notice, what are the requirements for contentment? What things must you possess in order to meet the qualifications for contentment? What things can you desire after and be completely innocent of covetousness? Well, according to verse 8, if you have food to eat and clothes to wear, you have enough to be content. That list is quite a bit shorter than Dave Ramsey's list. I'm pretty sure he puts transportation in four walls on his list. God does not. If you have food to eat and clothes on your back, you can be content. And unless there's a struggle going on here this morning that I don't know about, every single person in this room can be completely content with what they have, according to the scriptures. Now, you need to understand, I have experienced tight circumstances. I've been living, or have lived paycheck to paycheck in the past. I, I know what it's like to, to, to sort through the bills and go, okay, this one this month, <laughs> this one next. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to juggle. I know what it's like to have to squeeze and, and wonder where the money's going to come from. But I have never in my life had to miss a meal because we couldn't afford to eat. There may be someone in this room that's, that's gone through that, and I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying that's very rare. What I'm pointing out is that the Bible commands us to be content if we have clothes on our back and food to eat. 
And I dare say that's 99% of us. It's likely safe for me to make the assumption that for the great majority of us, we have several changes of clothing and a great variety of food in our diet. We eat like kings. We have food in our pantry from all over the planet. And we can be content. So the question is, are you content? Because what I'm trying to point out this morning is this. If you are not content, you will not be a a giver. You will not be a grace giver, a cheerful giver, a sacrificial giver, if you're not content with what God has given you. The pursuit of righteousness breeds godly contentment. Verse 9, the pursuit of riches. Pursuit of riches, verse 9 says, They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The world pursues riches and wealth. It's baked right into our culture, into our society. But here we discover just what that looks like. Notice the pursuit of riches is born of a desire. It says, they that will be rich. That word will there is the word for desire, wish. This is something you want. This is a path that you take. You see the riches of the world and you say, I want that. And you go after it. You desire it. You set goals to attain it. The pursuit of riches is something that no one is forced into. It's a desire, a lust for wealth. It's born of a desire, and then it becomes a trap. That pursuit quickly becomes your prison. On your way up the corporate and social ladder, you are destined to fall. What what you thought would take you up in the world is the very thing the Bible says will drive you down in your life. Why? Because not only does it become a trap, it breeds harmful lusts. We call the pursuit of riches greed. And it opens you up to many foolish, the Bible says, and hurtful lusts, desires. How many, I'm sure we could spend all day giving examples, how many have gotten rich and quickly spiraled out of control? Because the pursuit of wealth opens the door to many harmful and hurtful desires. And not only does it breed harmful lust, it brings you down to the depths. Down to perdition, destruction. It drowns men, it says, in in destruction and perdition. Proverbs 15, 27 says, He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. It'll bring trouble to your life into your household. Ultimately, the pursuit of riches will drown you. It'll ruin you. It will destroy you. If that's what you're desiring after, it will bury you. This is the natural progression of temptation and sin. This, as James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. There's the desire and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And that is why the love of money is the root of all evil. The reality of wealth, and then verse 10, the root of all evil. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through 
with many sorrows. Notice it says the love of money. The love of money. Don't fall prey to this often misquoted axiom. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And the word all in this verse can mean all sorts of evil. All kinds of evil. The love of money is the root, it's the desire from which all kinds of evil spring forth and grow. And just think of all that greed has led men to do. Don't love your money. <laughs> Don't admire your bank account. Oh, isn't that that that's nice? Doesn't that look good? Don't love your wealth. Don't value your wealth beyond what it's worth. Don't treasure it because Christian, you've got treasure somewhere else. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you love the wealth that this world affords you, your treasure will be here and not there because your heart will be here. You've got treasure somewhere else. The love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. The lust for more, the lust for more. Love of money is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. Covetousness breeds more covetousness. You know this is true. Why? You finally, you finally got that gadget or that Stanley mug or whatever. And then they come out with a new one. Oh, I, I want the new one. Oh, covetousness is never satisfied. Never. Greed is insatiable. Two friends met each other on the street one day. They hadn't seen each other in quite a while. One looked very discouraged, almost on the verge of tears. And his friend said, what in the world has happened to you? And the man spoke up and said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died. And he left me $40,000. The man said, well, that's, that's quite a lot of money. Oh, but you have to understand, just two weeks ago, one of my close cousins died, and, and he left me $85,000 free and clear. Well, sounds to me like you've been very blessed. No, you don't understand, the man interrupted. Just last week, my grandmother passed away, and she left me a million and a quarter. And the man was very confused at this point. Tell me, why? Do you look so upset? Because no one has died this week. The love of money, it's never satisfied. It's never satisfied. Covetous bre covetousness breeds more covetousness. There's more than one interview like this where the reporter asks someone wealthy like Bill Gates or someone like that, what do you get the man who has everything? And they'll say, what? More money. Just a little more. It's never satisfied. And then notice the loss of mirth. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money, the lust for more, 
It comes with the loss of mirth. It has a terrible price to pay. You may have your money, but you lose your joy. You're pierced with many sorrows. Your life is troublesome. Your family, like Proverbs said, will suffer. Your home will not have peace in it, and you will never find satisfaction in your riches. Researchers have found almost no correlation between increased income and happiness. For example, between 1957 and 1990, income levels in the United States doubled. Yet at the same period, people's levels of happiness did not increase. In fact, reports of depression increased tenfold. Incidents of divorce, suicide, alcoholism, and drug abuse also rose dramatically. It turns out that money really is not what your soul craves. It is not what your soul longs for after all. It's the root of all evil. And then notice the righteous pursuit. He says, but thou, man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. He says, Timothy, you should be fleeing covetousness. Run from covetousness. Run to contentment and godliness. As I shared this morning in the book of Luke, uh, Jesus says, beware covetousness. We don't often warn each other, hey, watch out for covetousness. We, we warn each other about other sins, but covetousness, not so much. But we should run from it. You, you know a very easy, and well, maybe not easy, but a very practical way to run from covetousness? Give. Give. Be generous. Proverbs 21, verse 25 and 26 says, The desire of the slothful killeth him. For his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. If you want to run from covetousness, give. Flee it. And then notice we should be following Christ-likeness. The Christian pursues riches that you can't deposit on this side of heaven. Things like godliness and faith and love and patience and meekness. It reminds me of the list we're given in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, where he says, Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian should be in the business of growing in his walk with Christ. Spiritual gains and fighting the Christian fight. Fighting the Christian fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Your pursuits here should match your destination. What you pursue here should match your destination. Are you laying hold on eternal life? Are you pursuing Christ while you live here on earth. Paul uses the illustration of a, an athlete. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And everyone that striveth for the mastery is temperate, self-disciplined in all things. 
Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Does your pursuits here, do they match your destination? We should be fighting the Christian fight. We should be faithful to the commandments. Verse 14, keep this commandment without spot. This is our primary endeavor. The world around us is clamoring, clamoring to increase their stuff and their wealth. And we should be clamoring to enrich our souls to invest in the kingdom. That's the fault of the rich man who rested in his wisdom, uh, in his riches, because God required his soul, not his wealth. Luke 12, it says in verse 19, the rich man, uh, the, the, the farmer that got rich overnight, he said, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If we pursue Christ, we will be found faultless at the appearance of Christ. It says in verse 14, keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any day now, any day now. Your soul could be required of you. You could be called up to glory. Someone asked D.L. Moody what the key to his preaching was, and he said, I preach every message as if God would call me home before I finish it. We should live every day as if God would call us home before we finish it. Will you be pursuing Christ when he calls you to himself? Luke 18, Jesus said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? We should be working to be found faultless at his appearing. The righteous pursuit. The love of money is the root of all evil. The reality of wealth, we can't take it with us, so we should be content instead. And the rich are commanded then, in verses 17 through 19, it says, Charge them that are rich in this world. I submit that that's us. That they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. The rich are commanded, first of all, we are commanded to have a proper opinion of self. Don't get too comfortable in your bank account, or in your job security. Don't get too, too uh, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't, don't get uh, too proud of your status in the middle class. Romans 12 verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God had dwelt to, dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't get too Proud of what you have. I had a man tell me while I was preaching on giving. He just didn't understand the point. He said, I could give $1,000 right now. I never saw it. But he was proud of the fact he had plenty. But like Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God has poured out blessings and benefits on your life. Notice, he doesn't condemn the rich. 
He commands them to have a proper opinion of themselves. If God has poured out wealth in your life, realize everything you have comes from him. And without him, Jesus said, this applies to your bank account, this applies to your career, this applies to your entire portfolio. Jesus said, without me, ye are nothing. Everything we have, it comes from him. And so the proper object of our trust then should be him. Verse 17 says, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Don't put all your security in your wealth. Don't look at your 401k and say, I'm all set. I'll be okay. I've got a good job. I'm set for life. A bank account is no guarantee for the future. A good job is no guarantee for the future. It can all just as easily be taken away. Trust instead in the almighty, infinite God, who is your heavenly Father. Because if God is the object of your trust, then your generous giving doesn't shake your foundation. Listen, I can't pastor. I, I, I hear what you're preaching. These are good stories. These are interesting and all. But if I give like you're asking me to give, what about, what about my retirement? What about down the road? What about my future? If you are trusting in God, your giving will not shake your foundation of trust. Many people refuse to give sacrificially because they trust in uncertain riches. Well, pastor, here's the thing. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard this before, not here. Uh, uh, the church is in my will. And it's a living trust. My kids can't change it. So when I die, the church is going to get my wealth. I've said it before. It's pretty easy to give when you're dead. But if you're trusting in your riches, you can't be generous. Because if you, don't, if you give too much away, what will I have tomorrow? Some can't wrap their minds around giving generously to the same God who gave them all of their wealth in the first place. You really think you can outgive God? Uh, W.A. Criswell tells of an, an ambitious young man who told his pastor, I promise God 10% of my income, I will tithe. And they prayed and asked God to bless his career. At the time he made the promise, he was taking $40 a week home. So he was tithing $4. In just a few years, his income increased so that he was tithing $500 a week. And he called up the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm giving $500 a week. Do you think there's any way I could be released from this promise I made? It's pretty expensive now. The pastor said, well, I don't see how you could be released from your promise, but we could pray that God would reduce your income back to $40 a week because you had no problem tithing the four. You really think you can outgive God? People forget that they're giving generously to the same God who gave them everything they have in the first place. 
And that's where the proper offering of riches comes in. What does God expect of those that have plenty, that are wealthy? They that do good, that they do good, verse 18, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. He expects us to make good use of that wealth. Do good means do that which benefits others. Confer benefits on others with your wealth. Rich in good works means be rich in serving God with your wealth. Ready to distribute is a giving term. It means giving generously and and liberally. It, It could literally be said it means to have an open hand with people. And then it says willing to communicate. That's another giving term, which means ready to share, graciously generous with your wealth. Those are commands that God gives to us that have riches. John Phillips said that God entrusts some people with riches so that they can use them for the good of mankind. The rich person has a tremendous potential for doing good. Jesus told the rich young young ruler, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. The more wealth we have, the greater our responsibility before God to help others. Are you offering liberally to others that which God has richly given to you? James 2, verses 14 through 17 say, What does it profit, brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, or in our vernacular, I'll pray for you. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, if it hath faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Proverbs 3, verses 27 through 28 is a principle to live by. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give when thou hast it by thee. If you have it, give it. That's the proper offering of riches. And then we see in verse 19, the proper operation of riches. What we need to understand is this. It says, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In giving this way, you are putting your riches to their most profitable use. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. That that phrase, laying up in stores, it literally means hoarding up for yourself. By giving away, you are hoarding up for yourself what? A good foundation. This is Texas, the slab for your mansion in heaven. No Texans will have a basement in heaven. That's literally what this means. A good foundation. The foundation of your building. You are hoarding up for that in eternity. And what a principle that is. The story is told of a man that died and went to heaven. And he was met by Peter who led him down the streets of gold. And they went by mansion after beautiful mansion until they came to the end of the street where they stopped in front of a shack. And the man was confused and asked Peter, why did I get a hut? 
When there's so many mansions I could have lived in. And Peter replied, well, we did the best we could with what you sent. That story is pure fiction, but the principle is truth. What are you sending to the heavenly storehouse? Jesus teaches this way in Luke, that if you give, you are putting your money in bags that won't break. You won't lose a single cent. Storing up, hoarding up. If you invest in eternity, you are making a wise investment that will reap eternal dividends. And if you study scripture, it will reap, it'll reap dividends this side of heaven also. Warren Wearsby said, we should use our wealth to do good to others. We should share. We should put our money to work. And when we do, we enrich ourselves spiritually and we make investments for the future. That they may lay hold on eternal life does not suggest that these people are not saved. That they may lay hold on the life that is real would express it perfectly. Riches can lure a person into a make-believe world of shallow pleasure. But riches plus God's will can introduce a person to a life that is real and a ministry that is everlasting. Are you investing the money that God has given you wisely? Because the most profitable use, according to Scripture, is to invest it in a way that would reap eternal reward. You won't lose a single cent. What God, what you lend to the Lord, the Bible says, He, he will repay. And one of my favorite passages is when Jesus says, that they that have forsaken houses or lands or father or mother for my sake shall reap a hundredfold in this life and that which is to come. You won't lose anything that you give over to the Lord. Do you pursue riches and hoard them and trust in them the way the world does? Or can you be generous because you're content? Can you be a giver and rich in good works as we're commanded to? Are you pursuing godly contentment? That's where the real wealth is. Because the pursuit of riches, it's a downward spiral. It's the root of all evil. The righteous pursuit, though, is to be fighting the Christian fight, fleeing covetousness by being generous and open-handed with what God has given us. I submit that all of us in this room are wealthy beyond Timothy's wildest dreams. Are you following the commands that God has given to the rich? Let's bow our heads and just approach the Lord with this thing in a quietness of our heart. I want to give you an opportunity to pray and respond. I don't know how God might be speaking to you this morning, but I trust that he is. We're going to give you a moment.